Is it the cure for global warming in our kitchen? Food isn't just a way to do less harm, uh, but actually a way to reverse climate change. I'm talking to Anthony Mint today, who is a world-class restaurateur and also working on the world's first carbon-neutral restaurant. And to do that, he's bringing in all kinds of technology involving how you raise beef and how you grow grain. That's coming up on Science Island, KACR 96.1 in the East Bay. Okay, Leah. Pretend the year is... 2150 and we've solved global warming what kind of things do you think we would have had to have done as a species and as a planet to solve global warming Mm, i think we would have had to band together in a very organized and united fashion to do a lot of things (laughs) like a quite a laundry list of things, among them putting a cap on certain emissions, becoming more carbon neutral, changing the way that we eat, changing the way that we live. The list would go on and on. Yeah, so that's pretty much correct. I think a lot of people think this is an industry problem uh, or a problem with our cars, and it's really an everything problem. And It turns out, for instance, that if we educated women and gave women all around the world access to birth control, that would do almost as much as if we were completely to stop all coal emissions, Um, which kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And who told you that? Uh, So that is something I learned from the guy who I interviewed this week, Anthony Mint, who's one of the foremost restaurateurs of the last decade. He's one of the guys behind Mission Chinese Food. And his new restaurant, which he started with his wife, Karen Lebowitz, is entirely dedicated to finding food solutions to solve global warming. And what was cool about it for me is I hear and read a ton about the global warming problem but you don't really hear about what it's going to take to fix it besides like, you know, switching to solar or electric cars. Um, And Anthony, he's read a lot of books and he's involved in a lot of different organizations and he's really trying to come up with practical ways of doing that. And he's starting at the restaurant level because food and the way we eat is it's in the top, three or four contributors to global warming gases on the planet. Right. And is he sourcing his food in a way that's radically different from a standard restaurant? Yeah. So that's part of the way that he gets to carbon neutrality as a restaurant. That's really cool. And what is the name of the restaurant? What's it called? So the restaurant is called Perennial. And the reason why it's called Perennial is one of the ways which experts think that we might be able to actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere is if we were to start switching to these perennial grains. Really cool. And how did he learn about all this stuff? Yeah, I think a lot of it has been self-education. I think like me, he had a child and kind of started to think about the world a little bit differently. 
And he's also just a very impressive guy. And so he started talking to these experts and finding out what all these people thought the best ways to address global warming were and started to put them into practice in his restaurant. That's really cool. And does he think it's something that can be replicated in other places? Because, of course, this sort of thing would need to happen on a pretty broad scale to address global warming. Yeah, he's hoping it can really be a model. And he's even created this uh, group which is trying to to make restaurants be able to certify themselves as being um, carbon neutral. So I'm incredibly honored to be talking to Anthony Mint today. Um, Anthony Mint has an incredibly long resume. He's one of the foremost restaurateurs in America. He's be- the man behind Mission Chinese Food and Commonwealth Restaurant. After that resume, I think he it's fair to say he could have done a lot of things, and he chose to take on global warming and our relationship with food in his latest restaurant, which is Perennial. So, Anthony, thanks so much for talking to me today. Uh, thank you very much, Grant. Um, so first, I should say all... Pretty much all of our restaurants uh, to date, uh, starting from the taco truck in 2008 to Commonwealth and now the Perennial, are are all basically collaborations. And so, you know, I I have a part in these things, but all credit due to you know our, our various teams and staff who uh, realize the visions at, at each spot. Sure. You know, we we had a track record of, of basically fun and successful restaurants that that had kind of a charitable agenda and gave back to the community in various ways. Um, and then five years ago we had a daughter and really started to think more about the future and the food system and nutrition and really climate change. Um, so I wonder if, if we're going to start with the food side of things, was there a particular meal or a particular moment that you, you had where you decided that you were going to make, make a living of food? Whew, uh, <clears throat> well, I guess, to be honest, probably my orientation to food has always been a little bit of an entrepreneurial one or like kind of the the kind of trick that gets you into the trap of like a whole career, which is basically like, why doesn't someone just do this um, or that? And so, you know, with food, uh, I grew up in the suburbs of D.C. and the whole food scene at that time in my youth was basically like you know fast food or cheap ethnic food or like fancy white tablecloth italian or steakhouse and there really wasn't a lot of interesting stuff in between and so you know i grew up kind of watching uh, cooking shows with my grandmother who didn't really speak english and and that was one of the ways that we kind of spent time together and so i mean i always had an interest in food uh, but it was i don't think it was like a particular meal that got me in interested in a career in food it was more of that idea of like why why doesn't someone just make this a little bit better and tell me about global your interest in climate change like how did that evolve and i know you mentioned it's it's partially your daughter yeah i mean i feel like you know climate change is one of those issues that is so big that it's hard to even imagine really doing anything about and um I guess really it's just having, I mean, it's a little bit cliched, but having a daughter and thinking about like the world that she'll grow up in, um, I guess we just 
started to think about whether we could do more than just give a buck and use our platform in the food industry to try to do something meaningful in that regards. And then what's crazy is that as we started to research it, um, you know, a really, really optimistic and powerful uh, narrative kind of emerged for us, which is that food isn't just a way to do less harm, uh, but actually a way to reverse climate change. I think for me, and I say this as a home cook, when I'm touching these ingredients, which I'm putting together in a meal, and I'm smelling all these different things, it's one of the few times in my daily industrial life that I feel really connected to different parts of the world. Sure. I mean, so for a lot of us in cities, you know, myself included, uh, I feel pretty disconnected from, or I did feel pretty disconnected from farming. Like I didn't really understand the nuances of farming. It's true that basically uh, food and farming is probably our closest connection to nature for a lot of us. And we may look back on this era, like the last few decades, as kind of this crazy time where most of like the developing or the developed world uh, was farming in a way that did not focus on healthy soil. So, like I said in the intro, a lot of us think that the changes that we're going to have to make in our per- in our personal lives to address climate change are these big changes with transportation and industry. But if you look at the numbers, farming is one of the biggest contributors to to how we are changing the planet. Yeah, so about, um, I'll just rattle off some numbers that may not be uh, exactly like pinpoint the right number, but just ballpark. It feels like people think that farming accounts for about uh, 15% of greenhouse gases, uh, livestock for about 15% of greenhouse gases, and then deforestation to produce food, you know, which has a little bit of overlap with those things, same, like around 15 or 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions. By the time you include things like packaging, transportation, you know, storage, processing, everything, you know, in a lot of cases, food can be more than half of all greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and like you were saying, it, that's basically not how most people think about food. I think most people think about it as related to fossil fuels and energy and stuff. So how can restaurants change that equation? Um, so, you know, what, what I think it boils down to is that, uh, there's two ways. Um, there's a lot of ways that restaurants can do less harm, uh, like conservation, energy efficiency, menu design. And then there's ways that they can kind of broadly take environmental responsibility. Um, and so that could be just, um, you know, I started a nonprofit called Zero Foodprint, along with some other uh, collaborators, including um, Chris Ying, former editor of Lucky Peach magazine. And the idea there is to basically let give restaurants uh, a really simple but meaningful way to take environmental responsibility. And so restaurants can be carbon neutral um, by learning about their operation, making the changes that make sense to them, and then offsetting the rest through greenhouse gas reduction projects in the food system. Um, some uh, domestically, some uh, overseas. And so, for example, Mission Chinese Food is carbon neutral, San Francisco is carbon neutral uh, by way of a 10 cent per diner contribution to these kinds of projects. Um, And so this is, you know, uh, admittedly, 
a little bit surface level, like the restaurant has not reinvented itself, uh, but it's at least a starting point in recognition of the fact that daily operations are so challenging, margins are so slim, and we can at least start by doing something. So take me into the genesis of Perennial, which is the beautiful restaurant that we're sitting in now. Um, what was the thought behind it? How did you want to do things differently? And have you been successful in, in setting it up in the way that you envisioned? Um, so basically, after uh, thinking about you know how we could make a difference um, in the food system and and try to connect the dots between food and climate change in a bigger way. Uh, somebody approached us to see if we would do a Mission Chinese food restaurant. And we basically said, you know, no, we're not really interested in opening more restaurants, honestly. But if we were going to do one restaurant, it would be kind of this experimental idea where that prioritized, you know, sustainability and the environment on equal footing with, you know, uh, deliciousness and culinary uh, aspirations. And so the people were basically like, all right, let's do it. Um, so that's kind of behind the scenes, the conversation of how the perennial started. And then, um, as I mentioned, I think to you in person, the, the other day, uh, you know, originally we thought that a lot of it was going to be around food waste and conservation and energy efficiency and menu design. Um, and I think if you take a second to think about it, that's not a really fun restaurant. Uh, that's kind of a an unexciting uh, place to go eat. And so I don't know what we were thinking. Um, but then as we did more research, we really learned this amazing story. Uh, and, and part of it is just sheer happenstance. Um, we're in San Francisco. We happen to be pretty close to this organization called the Marin Carbon Project. And, you know, I think we started, we visited them in May of 2014 or something. I forget. And then later, that year we heard Michael Pollan, like we had already put all the pieces in motion for the perennial and we were just doing research about how we were going to proceed. And then later um, that year we heard Michael Pollan speak about them at um, a New York Times Future of Food conference as basically like one of the stories of hope in the food system. Um, and so I'll, I'll fast forward really far. I can tell you all about their work, but one th uh, we source beef from Stemple Creek Ranch, which is a pilot project of the Marine Carbon Project. And they, they're they one of the first three pilot ranches. There's now about 15. Um, they've been uh, part of a carbon farming protocol for like four to five years now. And so it basically involves many different practices, but the two biggest ones are uh, managing the way the cattle graze and then jump-starting the soil microbiology with one a one-time application of compost, like a quarter-inch layer of compost. So the managed grazing is basically, uh, like I'll just make it really simple, um, it's called adaptive multi-paddock grazing. And what that really means is just breaking down your ranch into, let's say, 100 small paddocks instead of one big ranch. And then you put up you know, portable electronic uh, fencing that you can move really easily. You have all the cows in one paddock. A cow produces 50 to 70 pounds of manure in a day. So you can imagine like all the cows pooping, peeing in one place, nibbling the grass, but not killing it. And then you open the gate. You know, it's not this complicated thing with cowboys 
moving them around. They just want to go to the place that has fresh grass and it's not covered in poop and pee. They move to the next field. By the time they get back to that first field, the land is, you know, much more productive than it was before because of all the fertilizer uh, and pruning and breaking down of like dry uh, debris from last year and different things. Um, and so this is actually just mimicking nature and how animals used to work in nature. Uh, so it's just farming in a way that works with nature. Uh, and what's crazy is that if, uh, if all the ranches in the U S that are even part of the feedlot system, uh, switch to this kind of grazing that would already eliminate feedlots entirely. Um, because it's so much more productive that we wouldn't even need the additional feed from corn and soy and wheat and all this stuff. That's incredible. Um, and so that like, that's something that I just learned this May, uh, and it's part of like a big grass fed beef study, um, conducted by the stone barn center for agriculture. Um, and so it's just this whole thing where the more you learn about the food system in a way, it's sort of like so broken that it's extremely possible to fix it. If you really care about the environment, you care about carbon emissions, do you have to give up eating beef or meat? No. So, I mean, that's what is really exciting is I think that, um, feedlot beef or uh, lamb is kind of like public enemy number one from an environmental standpoint because it's very resource intensive and all the cows are in one place and fed a lot of antibiotics etc and so their manure actually isn't even good fertilizer anymore because it's full of antibiotics um, and part of the reason that they have to be fed antibiotics is that their cows are not even really supposed to eat wheat and corn and soy uh they're supposed to eat grass their stomachs are designed for that you know the diet that we're feeding them on feedlots is often kind of you know for lack of a better description giving them like indigestion all the time and so it's they burp more methane and they also are more prone to getting sick and stuff like that um and so overall the idea that just being part of consumer a consumer change that kind of uh let's call it requests grass-fed beef 2.0 where they're kind of uh 100% grass-fed managed a certain way um that being part of that change could actually help change the whole food system is pretty exciting um but I'll jump back quick to the marine carbon project so they the two main practices are managed grazing and then compost application and so as i was saying the compost sort of jump starts the microbiology you can imagine like unproductive kind of dry rangeland if you add a bunch of organic matter uh, through compost and then have the cows kind of do this grazing uh, pattern that kind of maintains it and helps proliferate it. Um, like I think just fundamentally you can imagine that as helping to restore that field. Uh, but then the numbers behind it are completely crazy um, and exciting. Uh, so at Stemple Creek, for example, 350 acres have been composted uh, which is just one-tenth of the ranch. Um, each year, the acres that have been composted, you know, they test the soil every year. And so the one-time application of compost creates a benefit year after year after year. Uh, and scientists estimate the benefit would continue for 30 to 100 years based on how deep the topsoil is there um, or like the, you know, the layer of topsoil. Uh, and then so the environmental benefit 
is the same as not burning 230,000 gallons of gas. So that's from one-tenth of one ranch. And so the name perennial, um, that refers to a type of grain which you use here in the restaurant, right? Absolutely. Um, So, well, first of all, uh, I mean, it refers to a kind of grain that we're serving here called Kernza, um, which is new and developed through natural breeding, um, a partnership between a nonprofit in the Midwest called the Land Institute and the University of Minnesota. And so that's basically a hybrid between uh, annual wheat and perennial wheatgrass. Um, and so basically uh, the, f- the prairies or the fields where we grow wheat and corn and soy, a lot of them used to be covered with perennial grasses or honestly like a polyculture, like a mix of perennials and annuals. And, you know, those plants would... Uh, that those ecosystems would flourish from year to year. No one is like plowing them up and adding fertilizers or chemicals or different things, but we couldn't eat those grasses. Um, Humans couldn't eat those. And so this organization, the Land Institute set out to basically try to reinvent agriculture in a way that worked with nature by creating a perennial grain. And this is actually pretty complicated because um, wheat or annual wheat, specifically the kind bred uh, to, to work with fertilizer is super productive. And so that's like a pretty high bar um, to try to hit for for a crop that doesn't even exist yet. And given that they were not gonna do any kind of genetic modification. Um, so it took really basically like a state of the art understanding of genetics to do the selection. And they're basically kind of, um, you know, they they crossed perennial wheatgrass with annual wheat and then they're sort of like breeding it with itself year after year after year to find to like get the slightly larger seed size so this beef and this wheat how do they taste compared to what we're used to eating uh i think they taste great um the you know grass-fed beef has come a long way in the last few years uh the stemple creek uses uh you know a pure Angus breed and you know the flavor is really great they're super tender uh you know they age them for a couple weeks before we get it um we get in you know quarter cows and basically age them in-house too a little bit longer um you know and, and as far as I'm concerned it's uh as good if not better than any kind of feedlot beef um the wheat kernza uh, or the flavor of kernza, uh, I think it has a lot more flavor than wheat. Um, we're milling some of it in house and getting some of it already milled, and you know we mix that in the bread that we make each day. And I think it's got a little bit of uh, like a slightly sour and grassy note. Uh, so since sourdough is kind of like the predominant um, you know bread of choice in San Francisco. Uh, following along on the heels of Tartine Bakery and other really good uh, bakers. Um, You know, we bake a sourdough daily that's 25% Kernza. And, um, you know, for me, I think that the flavor is great. So assuming that these um, and other agricultural innovations take, how close does this get us to some of the magic numbers that come up in terms of parts per million that we need to hit if we're going to avoid catastrophe? Um, so there's a scientist at Ohio State whose work 
suggests that globally uh, we have lost 70 to 90 percent of the organic matter in soil and that if we could increase that by two percent uh so like sorry sort of like good soil ballpark maybe has like five percent soil organic matter um you know that's basically like uh, all the microbiology the fungus and different things um <clears throat> kind of degraded soil can have as little as one percent or or less uh, and a lot of the you know, annual monoculture farmland in the U.S. is kind of in that range now, and and as a result, people need to apply more fertilizer and et cetera. Um, but so uh, the scientists at Ohio State's research suggests that if we can increase soil organic matter by 2%, you know, globally, mind you, but by 2%, uh, that would already take us below 350 parts per million. Wow, that's incredible. Um, so I want you to walk me through some of the stuff that you guys do here uh aquaponic greenhouse yeah so we were really excited um about aquaponics because uh you know what i've been talking about to date has sort of been um like in in the fields and not really urban agriculture or suburban agriculture or anything um but aquaponics is basically hydroponics that uses natural fertilizer um natural fertilizer from the animals that are best suited for cities which are fish once you start thinking about each acre of cropland as a valuable carbon sink, you know, it doesn't really make sense to grow a bunch of basil in the field that you're going to plow up every year and then, you know, put in a plastic clamshell on a refrigerated truck across the country somewhere else. Uh, it makes a lot more sense to just grow that in the city where it's going to end up being eaten. Um, so we were really inspired by this one uh, company in particular in Minneapolis in the former Ham's Brewing Company. Um, I think it's called Urban Organics, and we read an article in Newsweek about it. From one six-story building in Minneapolis can grow 700,000 pounds of vegetables and 150,000 pounds of tilapia per year. You know, I had read some numbers before where it's like after World War II, you know, everybody had what are called victory gardens, and 40% of all produce grown in the U.S. was grown in people's gardens. Basically, aquaponics is so efficient and... Uh, a good natural alternative to hydroponics. So, um, so we have a 2000 square foot aquaponic greenhouse and some raised beds that are also, um, kind of fertilized by the fish, uh, in West Oakland, just across the bridge. It's also fun for us kind of, uh, to play with the strange, you know, herbs and flavors that we're getting from there. Um, so that, uh, leads to some weird things like, uh, we have a dish on the menu that's marigold fried chicken. And, you know, it, in part, it's just because marigold grows really well in this, uh, in this climate. And, and so we started growing it there, not because we were setting out to make marigold fried chicken, but just because, you know, it's like a unique flavor. And then we eventually were like, this is really good with chicken. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of how, uh, one thing can lead to another, like in the terms of the creative process and using these um, you know, kinds of, uh, unusual ingredients. Are you hopeful? Uh, definitely. Um, I mean, that's, that's sort of what keeps us going each day is that, uh, you know, even if it's only like 50 or a hundred people at a time, you know, I think we're really, um, sending an optimistic message. 
Um, well, Anthony, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. It was really interesting. And the restaurant is called Perennial, and they're in San Francisco. Thanks so much. Cool. Thanks, Grant. So that's it for Science Island. Thank you so much, as always, to my co-host, Leah Hitchens, and also to Anthony Mint. Thank you so much for coming on this show. I know he's a very busy guy. If you want to listen to past episodes of Science Island, we have a podcast. You can probably find that easiest by going to our Twitter page, which is Sci Island. This is KACR 96.1 in the East Bay.